Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. In his fiscal update, Federal Minister of Finance Bill Morneau committed some $600 million in tax credits and incentives over five years for Canadian media organizations facing financial challenges. I spoke with a panel about that, a panel of guests, Catherine Stewart, executive producer for Talk Radio for Chorus, Maddie DiMuccio, former council member in Newmarket, and former Liberal MP Dan McTague. Back to work legislation passed the House of Commons early this morning. Today, the Senate will debate before ratifying Hassan Youssef is not pleased. He's the president of the Canadian Labour Congress. I spoke with him. The headline in the province newspaper, British Columbia driving up Canada's homicide rate. I spoke with former Vancouver Police Department Sergeant Curtis Robinson about that, about the gangs, and about a program in Vancouver called Bar Watch. Well, this week we found out that the Parole Board of Canada must put the privacy rights of a convicted double murderer ahead of the victim's family and public's right to know what is contained in the written decision by the board. That's if the offender has applied for escorted passes at any time. I spoke with Scott Newark about that, and we put Sherry Arsenault on. With Scott, she had questions about the parole hearing for the individual who killed her son and two of her son's friends. Grant Fagerheim, he's the president and CEO of Whitecap Resources in Calgary. He has over 30 years of diverse experience in both the upstream and downstream areas of the oil and gas business. We're going to talk to him about where we stand with our national energy program. Anybody who thinks it's just Alberta that's affected by what's happening with the energy sector, you're 100% wrong. This is the whole country is affected. The entire nation is affected. It's our economy. And as you know and as you heard, Frank McCandle, the former premier of New Brunswick, was on this program, now the deputy chair of TD Bank, telling us, and bears repeating, that over a recent seven-year period, $117 billion were lost to the Canadian economy just because of the discount at which we sell our oil to the United States, because we can't get it to international customers, because we can't get enough of it fast enough to distribution points on the ocean and the ports. Meanwhile, of course, we import 800,000 barrels a day for the refineries in, uh, in eastern Canada, which are still not working up to capacity even with that. Um... Susan Jones is a U.K.-based fund manager, wrote a letter to Justin Trudeau on the 7th of November. She's quoted in the National Post as saying, in her letter to Trudeau moving forward, I hope your government will start to recognize the numerous issues that are affecting Canada's energy sector and do everything in its power to support an industry which has benefited Canadians' prosperity for a long period of time. Financial Post goes on to say it follows a similar note last month by Darren Pierce, an analyst and investor at Los Angeles-based Capital Research, a $1.7 trillion fund which criticized Ottawa for allowing Canadian energy competitiveness to lag. Grant Fagerheim is the president and CEO of Whitecap Resources, Inc. in Calgary for over 30 years. He's uh, been involved with the oil industry in both the upstream and downstream areas of the oil and gas business. And prior to founding Whitecap Resource Inc. in 2008, Mr. Fagerheim was president and chief executive officer and a director of Cadence Energy Inc., a public oil and gas company. And in that same Financial Post piece, he's quoted as saying, if the people of Canada think for one moment that we can only have Canadian investors and hope to drive any type of business going forward, they are absolutely, massively mistaken. Grant Fagerheim joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. Fagerheim, thank you very much for the time. And please put that, uh, that, that quote of yours into perspective. We, we cannot survive by just having Canadians invest in our energy sector. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me, Roy. And, and uh, 100% uh, the, the comment that I had made about um, we cannot have uh, any growth in the Canadian sector, whether it's energy or any other sectors in Canada. We cannot grow our business and create jobs um, without 
foreign investors, whether they're United States, Asia, or Europe. And at this particular time, with the policies we have in, the, in Canada, are not friendly to future investment. So these are one of, some of the areas that we have to change and, uh, uh, with our federal government policies. When we talk about the, the numbers, about the money that's involved, and I, I tweeted and I've been speaking about that I find it absolutely unacceptable that we have a, a government that, that raises the deficit, borrows more money, and the multiples of billions of dollars. Our national debt is $690 billion, I believe. Our deficit probably in the 18, maybe more, billion-dollar range. Meanwhile, money, energy, jobs, um, prosperity, economic prosperity, is sitting in the ground. Correct. It's sitting in the ground. We're, we're, we're not moving. We have, we have rail cars, and I've been to Lac Megantic, so I know what, what can happen. Um, we, we, we're, we are not taking advantage of what is available to us, what is ours, what it would be logically expected to be taken advantage of by not only the federal government, but all governments in this country, I would expect, should, should be enthusiastically supporting what's going on. What do you see? How do you interpret this, uh, this Mr. Figurheim? From my perspective, Canada, um, as everyone has heard, is suffering from lack of confidence in the Canadian economic policy, making it our country difficult to invest uh, for not only foreign, but in the country investors as well. This is not just in energy. Um, it's also technology, manufacturing, and other sectors. And there's a need for consistent, honest, and tra- transparent policies that Canada has known uh, for, uh, is not known for at this time, I should say. Canada has focused its efforts on social policy that is commendable. However, it has been at the expense of the economic and financial policy, therefore putting Canadians' financial position for our aging population as well as our kids and grandkids at risk. And to me, that just isn't acceptable. I think we have to challenge, we have to stand up and push back to the policies that are being developed and put forced upon Canadians at this particular time. What other country would absolutely, I shouldn't say ignore, but whatever, what other country would put its, uh, put a, a massive nas- national resource that would have such potential benefit to the nation uh, on the back burner or just, or just negated to the point where it's not even mentioned in a, in a, in a fiscal, uh, fiscal update? Let me ask you this. I, I mentioned a, a minute ago the 800,000 barrels a day that are being imported into Canada in order to give the eastern Canadian refineries something to do. What do what's your thinking on that? Well, this is challenging. This is uh, where it becomes very, very difficult for us to understand and comprehend, and I think it should be for all Canadians to comprehend. So when we're selling our products at in excess, losing over $100 billion per year in revenue, which equates to, by the way, paying off the debt of 10 provinces within uh, one year, um, yet we're importing through Saudi Arabia. Uh, we're buying $300 million a month of Saudi oil into, uh, whether it's into eastern Canada. Uh, and we're also buying 270,000 barrels a day of importing U.S. oil into Newfoundland. These are into Newfoundland, Quebec, and Ontario. Yet we're struggling to get our products to market. And that's why when you have one customer in the world, that's which is the United States of America, it is critically important to get our product to foreign waters, to foreign markets, uh, whether it's on the east or west coast of Canada. I think um, the, the massive amounts of money that's being left for our resources, these are ours. And when, when we talk about this, when we think about it this way, that when we work in the energy sector, on behalf of all Canadians, we work to harvest these resources at the lowest cost possible and sell the production at the highest price possible. While doing so, in the most respected environmentally and advanced processes available on the planet, today all the Canadians are being penalized financially for not being able to sell our assets anywhere close to world prices. This is a travesty. And it has to be something that has to be addressed. We have a prime minister who said this. Listen again, please. 
Oh, there is no question that uh, folks in Alberta, folks here in Calgary, are uh, are living through extremely difficult times. Yes, this is a this is a very much a crisis. When you have a price differential that's up around forty two, fifty dollars, even uh, that's a, a massive challenge to uh, to local industry, to uh, the livelihood of a lot of Albertans. He doesn't seem to understand that it's not just local industry, that it's not just Albertans. Albertans are taking the bear and the brunt of it, but it's all Canadians are suffering because of this. He doesn't quite seem to understand that it's a national issue. And, and I must ask you this, has, has there been anything as far as you're concerned, even a hint, that the federal government is going to provide necessary assistance to the Canadian energy sector? He didn't bother mentioning it during the fiscal update, or Mr. Morneau didn't. Are you seeing, hearing anything that encourages you? Well, Roy, it's interesting. That one's an interesting one because there has not been any attempts by the federal government to provide assistance other than to comment that they have bought the pipeline. I think the patronizing comments that we did hear uh, um, by uh, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, two days ago in in Calgary um, saying that we feel your pain. I don't believe they know the pain that is happening in our municipalities in Canada. Um, not just in Alberta. This is going to be felt right across Canada for, for much time to come. So when we, we're hopeful um, that they will soon acknowledge that Canada is becoming more and more divided as a result of their inability to get things done in this country. A true test for all of us uh, to pay close attention to for certain. Um, when we look at this Bill C-69, um, uh, we would expect that at, at a minimum, the government would have come out and said that we're going to defer any decision through the Senate on Bill C-69, and we can explain that after, but defer it through to um, an election vote um, because it will stymie any pipeline activity in this country for many, many years to come, which again will be harmful to the financial benefit of all Canadians. That has to be understood. It's all of us. Hospitals? Uh, our health care is extremely expensive, becoming more so. We hear constantly that is a, you know, it's an aging population. Uh, and, and, and people are paying for medical services they never thought they'd have to pay for because the money's not there. The money's in the ground in Alberta. So the Prime Minister wants some advice, Mr. Fagerheim. He's anxious for advice. So I'll ask you this. Do you have a sense that uh, this government, he talked about how hard they've been working and how committed they are and, and brought up Trans Mountain. Do you have a sense that they're going to actually follow through on the commitment to Canadians, uh, you know, actually do something with the $4.7 billion they spent to purchase TMX? Do you see it being built? What are your thoughts? So I must admit, Roy, at this time, that I am not confident that the federal government has uh, can demonstrate the leadership required to build this pipeline. Um, when we hear uh, Prime Minister Trudeau talk about the right way, uh, as you had mentioned earlier, I don't know what they're referencing by the right way. There's no specific outline of what this right way is, and does that mean Canadians have not done it the right way previously? Um, I struggle with that. I sure hope that this government, along with all Canadians, understands what we are getting this pipeline built means to all of us, not just the energy sector, but all Canadians. Perhaps being, bringing back a little confidence from investors that these projects can get completed in Canada and Canadians can get the benefit for their resources. I hesitate and I, it bothers me to say that I don't think it's their clear intention to drive this pipeline, or any pipeline, as a matter of fact, through to uh, to completion. No, he says the right way. Frankly, the Prime Minister says the right way because somebody told him to say that, and it means nothing. It really means nothing. Um, when when you hear the suggestion, and it's made by, made by industry leaders in the oil business, that Alberta should maybe slow down the flow of oil, arbitrarily say, okay, this is all we're going to produce now. You're going to have to live with that. Is that a smart move? That's a disastrous move. And you think about the financial... Well, when we're talking about these near-term curtailments, I mean, I think that um, one of the premises that we have to live within, Roy, is I think um, that we should be, as Canadians, accelerating our products to market, 
getting to farm pricing so that we can, as you had mentioned earlier, we can build, have the best health care systems, build better schools, advance technologies, um, have a better social network from our underprivileged people of our country. Um, when, when we talk about the near term, you know, uh, we, while I normally don't support uh, government intervention, we're at a crisis point in the market. The market has become distorted, and the only way to rebalance and de- the, the demand and impact of the oil uh, price for Alberta producers is to cut back production. production. Um, regrettably, we started to do it voluntarily, but it needs to be an industry-wide uh, uh, to have any impact. So, therefore, white cap resources, we support the option, if it is time-limited, targeted until pipeline capacity issues are resolved. I'm going to be speaking with the former Premier of Newfoundland tomorrow, Brian Peckford, and he wrote, I'm going to read this tomorrow, but I'll, I'll read this part now. The federal government can't just look south. They've made things almost impossible for the Alberta oil and gas industry, which is in large part the country's oil and gas industry, the country's oil and gas industry. The Gateway Pipeline stopped because of the federal pipeline halt on pipelines in the Great Bear Forest. Energy East Pipeline stopped because of new federal policy on including downstream issues in pipeline construction, delaying Trans Mountain until taxpayers have to pony up if it really ever does go ahead, making more regulation in the revised environmental legislation presently before Parliament, and on top of that, a carbon tax. So a double whammy, one we inflicted on ourselves, one by the Americans. Are we... If, if, if things don't improve, where will we be in a year? So this is, that one's a, a very difficult, uh, we are dealing with a massive amount, we will be dealing with and are a massive amount of capital cutbacks at this particular time, which is jobs. And if we're into relative to energy, um, but that the spinoff effects, we can't give the financial magnitude of that today but that should be the responsibility of our federal leadership. They were elected to right. do a job to look forward, not look back, see the challenges that we have, understand and be proud of the fact that we are the have the highest... And I, I wish I didn't have to do this. We have 10 seconds. And highest standard um, of uh, uh, environmental responsibility. But I have to tell you... Um, I'm concerned over the next, what I would consider to be next year, I'm very concerned for for where we go financially from this point forward. Mr. Fagerheim, thank you very much for joining us. I hope you'll come back. Okay, thanks very much, Roy. Thanks, Grant Fagerheim. Now, look, I feel compelled to speak on this issue because I find it disturbing and troublesome. The optics certainly are. One move in Trudeau's fiscal update is the focus. A shamble of shameless grabs at votes for the next election on the 21st of October next year? Or is it a government acting responsibly? Did Trudeau just do his level best to buy Canadian media support by putting $600 million in play for Canadian media organizations struggling financially? Some argue this is a responsible move to support independent media. Others scoff at that suggestion, saying it's simply the Liberals making media organizations which receive a check from the federal government, beholden to Mr. Trudeau. Will conservative media organizations, the few which may be conservative, receive any of that money? Joining me on the program, we have a panel. We're going to discuss this. Maddie DiMuccio is a former council member in Newmarket. Uh, She was also a Toronto Sun columnist. Hi, Maddie. Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me on the show, Great to have you join us. Catherine Stewart is the executive producer of Talk Radio for Chorus Radio Network. She joins us from Vancouver. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Roy. Pleasure to be here. Great to have you with us. And my good friend, Dan McTague, chief petroleum analyst at GasBuddy.com and an 18-year liberal MP. Mr. McTague, how are you doing? Good to be here. Thanks for having me, Roy. Uh, Maddie, let me start with you. How do you, What's the optics? What are these optics to you of the decision made by the Trudeau government to put $600 million in play for media organizations that say or prove... They're short on cash. Well, I think the optics are what most reasonable Canadians would believe, and that is, you know, while I think we all agree that um, with the Liberals that the, that the free press is vital for a strong, independent democracy, the key word that they fail to understand is independent, and making the media dependent on tax subsidies changes that concept in a very fundamental way. And those of us who work in the media and who have worked in, in politics understand this uh, in, in a big way. 
Um, I'm not surprised to see this turning into a political hot potato with, with both sides arguing for it and, for, and against it. Um, it raises a huge red flag about politicizing the media, and that's something that critics are very deeply concerned about. Um, I understand, you know, as a former counselor, how government funding and media works. You know, here in York Region, we had an FOI uh, sent out. It revealed that our, our own struggling lo- local media, who habitually, who, uh, habitually prints flowery stories about incumbents and digs up dirt on new candidates, spent over $100,000 annually on running ads. So there's no doubt that the media... Um, being subsidized by government uh, is a huge conflict of interest, yeah. and 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 I think that's that's at, you know the, the the crux of the matter here. Yeah, certainly that's the way I'm seeing it. Let's talk to Mr. McTague. If you were still a member of Parliament, Dan, if you were a member of Mr. Trudeau's caucus, you'd be expected to go out and sell this. Do your best. Yeah, I would, and I probably wouldn't want to, and I certainly wouldn't uh, be in the position of uh, trying to sell such a thing. Uh, I belong to a caucus of Paul Martin and Jean Chrétien. I would assume that, uh, fairly accurately, that uh, Jean Chrétien would have taken the position that if uh, there are positions and uh, stories that are worthy, the public will buy them, and therefore they ought to fund themselves. Uh, To somehow torque this into an issue of saving democracy or freedom of the press is, uh, I think, a a little strange and and I think a little long in the tooth. I, I would expect that uh, many Canadians may not be aware of the fact that government is prepared to commit such a large amount of money uh, for this purpose. And although none of us would uh, ever deny uh, the importance, uh, the indispensability of the ability for uh, the press to act in a way, generally, eclectically, as a fifth estate, to ensure that we have uh, a vibrant uh, you know, variety of ideas and opinions and angles and perspectives, there becomes a, a perception, at least out there, that if you're going to subsidize that you're somehow in some way uh, being able to perhaps uh, solely favor from that particular outlet. Uh, They're beholden to you. And I think that's certainly not the way in which this is supposed to work. One of the things, of course, we have to recognize is the changing transformation. The landscape has changed in terms of digital information and how people receive it. People can get their information from anywhere. It doesn't cost them this. Even with tax incentives, which I understand this to be, at the end of the day, I think... uh, there is concern about the connection, uh, real or otherwise, that uh, such a move would have financially, making that media outlet particularly beholden to the government and, of course, brings in the issues of attestation. What if the government doesn't like what you have to say, as we saw with Mr. Trudeau in the summer summer youth program, where if uh, you happen to espouse a particular view, uh, uh, you're suddenly cut off. Catherine Stewart, I left my uh, media colleague, my chorus colleague, to last because... I'm interested in what you think, Catherine. Here we are. We're in the media business, and uh, I use the word business advisedly. My perception has always been we make it or we don't. We survive or we don't, depending on the performance that we put out and how many customers we have and how impressed our client base is with us or conversely isn't. How how do you see what they've done? Yeah, I mean... The Lord knows the idea of government subsidizing private industry is not new, and it's certainly not unique to the media industry. Uh, I mean, the government spends billions of dollars every year on a suite of private industries across the country, and that's been going on for years. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, this is not a one-time injection that's all of a sudden going to get the industry back on its feet. The media industry, and specifically the print journalism industry, has a business model problem, you know, and this is an injection of money that is just going to treat the symptoms. It's not going to treat the problem. Mm -hmm. If you have an auto manufacturing facility that isn't selling very many cars, having a government subsidy to hire more auto workers isn't going to solve your business model. It might keep your factory open for a few more years. Uh, It might keep it open for long enough to find a solution to your business model. But that is a big might. So I asked questions, and you guys got into it. But I'm sure there are things you want to say about this move by the federal government uh, that have nothing to do with what what I raised. So, Catherine, why don't you fire away? On the $6 million investment into the media, I mean... What I would love to see, honestly, whether it's the media or the oil industry, again, is I'd love to stop 
to see an end to these stopgap measures. And I'd love to see some structural changes in both industries, frankly, to help get industries on their feet so that they can stop being on the lifeline of the government. You know, it's $600 million over five years for the media. The government's also spending $3 billion a year in subsidies for the energy industry. And neither of those things are an indication of health. Yeah, $3 billion, is, that's another number that was raised. Uh, Maddie, what, what, uh, what do you want to add to what we've talked about? Well, you know, Roy, I wanted to touch on a couple of things that both Catherine and Dan said. So Catherine had mentioned something about, um, you know, where, where the media sort of stands in this and what happens here. And they, and they need to look at where they went wrong. So they've been inconsistent with their paywalls for years now. And when you give the public free access, they'll take it. But traditionally, the public has always paid for the newspaper. And the fact that it's been transferred predominantly to digital format doesn't change that routine or role or tradition of, of the public paying for what we read. And nor should it. You know, people will continue to pay for good, good journalism, and we need it, because a lot of our big Canadian papers produce some excellent investigative journalism, and that's important. So we have to have to look at more than just throwing the money, because the media is not really in the business of, uh, of, of marketing, they're in the business of journalism. Is the bottom is the bottom line really? If you can make it, you make it, and if you can't make it, unfortunately, no, you're going no, to disappear not, from the landscape. That's definitely not what I what I'm saying. For example, so Maxine Bernier's suggestion that if the federal government wants to do anything with the media, with the struggling media, it should start first of all by prohibiting the CBC, the public media, from selling advertising. That's a good suggestion because it would divert the ad money from the CBC that the CBC currently receives to struggling uh, private media outlets. And that's a big boost to revenues for these big companies. But I would go a step further to demand why the CBC even required uh, that extra cash infusion, infusion a few a few you know years ago back by the Liberals mm-hmm. when they're also getting ad dollars. Right? Okay, we have two and a half minutes. Dan? Yeah, there was a time in the 1990s when uh, prior to uh, the Heritage Minister at the time, I believe it was Sheila Copps, where uh, CBC was, in fact, uh, standing on its own without uh, the need for advertising. Of course, things have changed, and uh, dramatically so, but I I think there has to be a much greater understanding and appreciation uh, from the public as to what implications there are here. There are other priorities. Uh, A country that is running up a very serious uh, tab with respect to uh, a deficit, which I think, uh, although you can probably fall back and say, well, the economy is still growing, we're spending at a time when uh, you know there could be uh, looming and, and growing signs of. Uh, There's no reason for us to borrow any money. Well, that's the point: is that we don't have the room to do this. Uh, I mean, we can talk about the politics of whether this is right or wrong. The reality is that we've been down this road before. I mean, mm-hmm. Kent Inquiry back in the 70s. Yeah. Uh, there's a number of other examples where concentration, uh, when Southam was taken over, all of these issues are not new. What is important and vital is for the government to focus on the immediate concern at hand, and that's the energy uh, collapse. And it's not something that uh, is is global. It's actually something local and and very much self-inflicted by this government. You know, Catherine, people are going to, and I've seen it in emails, they'll draw a straight line between that $600 million and media receiving the money and then media returning the favor to, to the government. Now, whether or not that's reality, it's perception. And at some point, perception becomes reality. You also mentioned the three billion dollars. Another three billion is going to be spent on deciding what kind of fighter planes we should have. Uh, meanwhile, we're spending five hundred million dollars to buy used fighter planes from Australia. This is just—it's almost as though logic was thrown into a blender, and whatever comes out at the other end, we consume. Well, and that's the thing is that they're ostensibly trying to help the news media, but when you undermine trust in the media at a time when trust in the news media is already at an all-time low, all you're doing is making it tougher for, you know, the smart, tough, fair reporters in this country to do their jobs in a smart, tough, fair way. Exactly. Exactly. That's so true. And there are great reporters, and there are great people working in our media. And unfortunately, this move is going to make their lives, or has the potential to make their lives at least professionally more difficult. Maddie, thank you so much. Dan, great talking to you as always. And Catherine, That's I right. really enjoy talking to you because you were my you were the first producer on my show. It's true. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine Stewart from Chorus, Dan McTague, GasBuddy.com, Maddie DiMuccio, former counselor in Newmarket. Joining me uh, to address it from the labor perspective, this 
back-to-work legislation is Hassan Youssef, the president of the Canadian Labour Congress. Mr. Youssef, what do you say in response to what the minister just said? Well, I think the minister's argument is a little bit um, um, challenging in the context that they're legislating uh, workers back to work uh, when they've had, of course, a rotating strike, not a, a total disruption of the service. And a large part of that had to do with trying to get the corporation to address the core issues that the workers, I think, have been um, trying to get the corporation to deal with for over a year in, in, their, in their bargaining. That's health and safety in regard to the urban mail carriers. And more importantly, how you pay the rural carers in terms of for hours work, uh, so that at least uh, they know what they're making versus the fact that he's relying on each parcel. Well, let me ask you this: how clo- how close were they? Do you understand? Well, um, you know, it, you know, the challenge is always uh, sometimes things may seem very close, and then they seem very much apart. I think on the certainly they were closer in understanding the discussion as to what needs to be done to try and stem the injury tie that these workers are being faced with. And that's how you, of course, they distribute, uh, distribute parcel and uh, mail and flowers and what have you that they have in their bag. And in addition to that, of course, uh, on the rural side was how they should pay workers. Three years ago, of course, they fought for pay equity. They finally got the arbitrator to determine what the pay equity compensation should be. And of course, trying to get the employer to match it with an hourly raise has been a real challenge. But you knew you knew this was going to happen. You knew there was going to be back-to-work legislation. You knew the federal government, this one like others previously, and others yet to come, they will look for the most opportune moment, and they have public opinion on their side. They'll wait for the most opportune moment, and then they'll pass the legislation. You, you knew this is, was going to happen, right? Well, I was expecting, you know, at least the government uh, will be much more um, engaged in telling Canada Post, listen, you need to go find a negotiated settlement than relying upon us to do your, your job, because at the end of the day, that's not going to solve your problem. No, but you, you knew there were, you were new. I guess what I'm saying is, you knew yes. it was going to happen. Why not preclude well, their action by taking a positive step yourself? Well, Roy, it didn't happen three years ago. I mean, three years ago, again, these workers were... Uh, making a very strong argument that yeah. how the rural workers need to have uh, pay equity uh, compared with their urban counterpart. And at that time, they had a negotiated settlement. It took some time. There was rotating strikes and all of that. But at the end of the day, they actually reached a negotiated settlement three years ago. So at the end of the day, it could have happened again. And, and this was a new government at the time. They put some pressure on Canada. Why, why do you think then, issues. I'm sorry to rush here because we have limited time. Why do you, why do you, why do you think the Trudeau government took the step it took when it took it. What, what, why did they do what they did when they did it? Well, I think for the most part, I think they bought the argument from the corporation. There was no way that the two sides could uh, um, reach an agreement in a timely way that, of course, will get the mail moving before the holidays. And I think that was the impending decision that they were dealing with. It still doesn't justify the action. And I think our argument has always been you need to respect collective bargaining because if you don't fix the health and safety issues, they're going to be there uh, continuing long after this dispute have been legislated, uh, these workers have been legislated back to work. And similarly, on the pay equity stuff, um, uh, you got to pay these workers an hourly raise, and, and somebody got to figure that out. It's best if the party uh, determined that on their own than an arbitrator or somebody else making that decision for them. Of course, they didn't legislate the terms of the um, settlement. An arbitrator would try to mediate, and if he or, if he or she can't reach a mediated or settlement, then he or she'll uh, arbitrate the final um, Mm -hmm. proposal for these workers and and, and the employers. Is this going to, Mr. Yusuf, is this going to disturb what seems to be a reasonably positive relationship between the Trudeau government and unions? And we know Unifor has declared itself to be Andrew Scheer's worst nightmare heading into the election. Is this going to cause a problem for Mr. Trudeau and, and, uh, and the union support? Well, I, I think, you know, we're certainly troubled by it. I mean, the government has done some very uh, good things in, in support of workers in terms of legislation. They have uh, repealed, but in addition to pass some new legislation that improves the conditions for workers at the federal level. But you don't want to see this kind of behavior and action to be a regular feature of the government at the end of the day. I think the government is going to have to work much harder to, of course, not breach what is the constitutional right of these workers to not to be legislated back to work as when that happened in the past the supreme court have ruled in the saskatchewan case and subsequently of course in 2011 mm-hmm. the stephen harper uh, back to work legislation was illegal and i'm hoping the courts one day will slap the, uh, all governments not just this government with with huge um, 
damages for actually breaching that constitutional right. Otherwise, okay. it has no. Do you have Do you have any doubt that uh, this government took this step for this government's own well-being? Well, I took the step because they were faced with a huge amount of pressure from a lot of people um, saying that you know you need to get the mail moving. A lot of people rely on it, of course, for. Yeah. Delivery, but I, I I would counter that with saying you know all those things are true, and I understand there's some frustrations about the service have been slow and the rotating strike are happening. But if people have fundamental rights in the Constitution, I think government need to be careful not to keep violating them because what does that say about those rights being breached on a constant basis? And more importantly. Well. It's not a fundamental breach for people not to get their parcel on time. I can understand the frustration. Right. Well, there's more. There's more to come. There's more to come because it's not through the Senate yet. So yeah, who knows? You and I may be, may be talking again tomorrow, Mr. Well, Yusuf. I'm hoping that with the time left, that uh, again the mediator yeah. will try to work to to get bring the right. parties to a final settlement here at the end. Thank you for t- taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you, Roy. All the best. There's the uh, president of the Canadian Labour Congress, Hassan Yusuf, in B.C. in British Columbia. Arrests took place. The clerk, Craig James, and the sergeant at arms, Gary Lenz, were arrested and perp-walked out of the uh, legislature building a few days ago. So what's going on? What do we know? And what lies ahead? And uh, I also want to find out from my good friend Mike Smith, political columnist with The Province and uh, CKNW talk show host, what's going on with the... uh, with a referendum. Mike, thank you for taking the time. I, I got, The question is, what's going on? Uh, hi, Roy. Thanks for having me on. Well, just, just, to, just to point out, they, these, these guys have not been arrested. They were placed on administrative leave. In other words, they were basically suspended with pay uh, by the B.C. legislature and were led out of the Parliament buildings with a police escort on Tuesday. But Officials here have been at pains to point to say that they have not been arrested. Um, they have not been charged with anything. There is an investigation into something. Uh, Craig James is the clerk of the legislature. He's the most powerful of official, appointed official in the place. He uh, makes over $300,000 a year. He's been the clerk for many, many years. Gary Lenz is the sergeant-at-arms. He's a former RCMP inspector. Uh, he's in charge of security in the building. It was an absolutely bizarre spectacle here on Tuesday when the pair of them were led out of the building with police escort, effectively, like you said, perp-walked, with the TV cameras rolling. And we were told that they are under a subject of an RCMP investigation with two special independent special prosecutors in place. No one is saying what they're suspected of doing or what the investigation is about other than to say it has to do with their administrative duties. So that's the situation we're at now, but it has ignited a political firestorm here in British Columbia. The lawyer for these two gentlemen yesterday uh, sent a letter to the various House leaders at the B.C. legislature insisting their clients are innocent, they've done nothing wrong, they don't even know what they're accused of, and they want their jobs back. Uh, I don't see that happening um, but this is going to last into next week, uh, as this, as once again we get a classic kind of made in BC political spectacle here. We it, only in British Columbia does this stuff seem to happen. Pretty wild. Well, there's a lot going on in British Columbia, and thank you for correcting me on the arrest thing. I, I, mean, yes. I, th- I thought when I, when somebody I'd read somewhere they were arrested, and I thought, well, if you're arrested, there are going to be charges, and and there were no charges, so obviously that was not the case. Now yeah. uh, there was a story in the National Post suggesting possible fraud and theft involving public funds. But right. is that the result of deductive reasoning or guessing? Uh, the story that was in the National Post uh, quoted a couple of unnamed sources saying that, that, that uh, according to those sources, that's what this was about. Uh, I haven't seen any confirmation of that, either official or unofficial in any other media outlets. I certainly, I think, significantly have not seen any denials either from anybody that that's what it's about. So perhaps, perhaps that's what it is about. Uh, all the all the people are saying here on the record is that it has to do with something that's in, on to do with their administrative duties, and that it's a very complex <coughs> a complex investigation, which is why they have put not one, but two special prosecutors in place to oversee it. There is still a ton of uh, unanswered questions here, though, about how this was handled. The two the two people here who were, were led out of the building were placed 
as I said, suspended with pay. And that was as a result of a unanimous vote by MLAs in the B.C. legislature on Tuesday. There was a motion to suspend them pending this investigation, and they were let out of the building. The opposition Liberal Party is now raising concerns about that. They appear to be having second thoughts about how this was handled. They're very critical of the Speaker of the legislature here, Daryl Plekis, wondering where he got the authority to launch some kind of investigation against these guys. Now there's going to be a meeting uh, of an all-party committee of the legislature here in British Columbia next week to go over that. So <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a firestorm to be sure, but mo- most people are just wondering what the heck is going on. I mean, the, the, the scene here on Tuesday when these two gentlemen were let out of this building is like something I've never seen. I, I've been covering B.C. politics for over 20 years. I've seen a lot of crazy stuff, but I've never seen something like that. The two top officials in the place still wearing their ceremonial robes of office being frog-marched out of there with the police. Wow, yeah, just just very strange situation, and uh, it's going to continue into next week. And Mike, I can't think of this having happened. I'm just casting back here. But I can't recall anything like this happening in Canadian politics previously. I may be missing a, a something very obvious, but I can't remember anything like this previously. No, it's 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 quite bizarre. I mean, these are these are two guys that are very well known uh, figures at the BC Legislature. Craig James has been the clerk for a long time, a uh, very friendly guy, quite quite a respected fellow. Gary Lenz, the Sergeant at Arms, is a former RCMP inspector who's in charge of safety and security. Uh, in the building, which it's a position that is typically has a police background, and and he has a a pretty spotless uh, record as an RCMP officer. So to see the two of them led out of the building and then be and then being told that they're subject of an investigation themselves has just taken any everybody by absolute shock. I mean, the people in the building here on Tuesday, as you're walking down the hallways, whether it was the politicians. Uh, the bureaucrats, the staff, the the janitor, they're, they're all sort of standing with their jaws hanging open and whispering in corners, wondering what the heck is going on. So one of the, one of the uh, challenges with this story is with officials clamming up and not saying anything uh, in detail about what this is about. There's a lot of speculation and rumor, rumor out there. It would be nice to see the RCMP issue a, a bit more detail about what it is that this investigation is about. Maybe we'll get some of those details this week. Mm-hmm. I was also wondering, could this be because, here we go, speculation, right? Could there be, could it be because that there are other people who are involved that we don't know about yet? Uh, some people have wondered, well, you know, how did this start? Was Is there a whistleblower that has come forward to, to, to start this all off? It, it apparently tra- traces back to Daryl Plekis, the Speaker of the Legislature, said that he had developed some sort of concerns about these two gentlemen. He hired uh, another uh, another gentleman to, to come in to investigate. Um, that is now the subject of controversy about whether this special advisor that he had hired had the authority to conduct an investigation at the legislature for several months before he went to the police. So there's a lot of criticism about the way this was handled. The, the letter that came from the defense lawyer for the two men who were suspended are raising questions about whether the speaker had the authority to launch an investigation of these two men or to hire someone to to carry it out. So there could be some constitutional questions uh, being raised here as the case goes forward about whether there was uh, the, the legal the legal precedent and authority to, to actually do this in the first place. And you've got the opposition liberals now also raising the same concerns. They voted unanimously along with all the other MLAs in the legislature to suspend these two gentlemen, but now they're having second thoughts about the way it was handled. They've got a lot of questions about how it was done, and that's why I think it's this, this story has got legs, as they say, and it will continue into next week. Now, let me ask you one more thing here. How's the uh, referendum moving along? <clears throat> The referendum is an interesting one, Roy. It's uh, British Columbians are voting in a mail-in referendum and whether we want to switch to a system of proportional representation for electing our politicians here. According to the opinion polls, it's very, very close between the yes and the no side. They have just extended the voting period by one week. It was supposed to end this Friday. That has now been uh, extended into December 7th, so a one-week extension. Because of the rotating job action by Canada Post, 
giving people another week to get their ballots mailed in. There's been about a 30% return of the ballot so far with another couple of weeks to go. It is really up in the air about the way this is going to go. A lot of the opinion polls are just right down the middle. You require only a, a bare majority for this thing to pass, so it's, it's teetering on a razor's edge right now of whether British Columbia is going to go to a proportional representation system. We're going to find out here pretty soon. If it wasn't for B.C., politics in Canada would be predictable. Yeah, I tell my friends I never have writer's block when I'm writing my <laughs> column in the Vancouver Province newspaper. It's never a problem. Mike, thank you so much for the time. Anytime, Roy. Mike Smith, political columnist uh, in the province newspaper, talk show host at CKNW, our chorus radio station in Vancouver. BC driving Canada's homicide rate. British Columbia's homicide rate was up 32%, according to StatScan, making it the province's highest rate since 2009. And B.C.'s highest numbers were Metro Vancouver with 52 homicide victims in 2017. And the story says that British Columbia and Quebec are leading the, the unfortunate homicide parade in, uh, in Canada. Gra- uh, joining me is uh, Curtis Robinson. He's a former Vancouver Police Department sergeant. He's the chair of Bar Watch in Vancouver. I want to talk to him about all of this, the combination of what he knows about what's going on on the streets, and then what's happening in the in the bars and the in the restaurants, because we hear a lot of stories about violence starting in these in some locations and spilling out on the streets. When in Vancouver, Bar Watch, they've taken steps uh, against that. Curtis, thank you very much for taking the time. Thanks, Roy. So, talk to us, please, about the 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 whole reality of violence in Vancouver. You're familiar with with the gangs. We hear a lot about gang activity in British Columbia, particularly in Metro Vancouver. Can you give us a bit of a sense of of what that's about and how significant an issue and problem it is? And who are the gangsters? Well, first of all, Roy, I'm not a gang expert. Um, My introduction to this started about, I guess, about 14 years ago with the beginning of the Bar Watch program at Vancouver. So I had to play catch-up. Right. But uh, I did know a lot about what was going on in Vancouver because where it was occurring, mainly in the north area of Vancouver and also out towards the outskirts, um, I was working in that area at that time and witnessed a lot of the problems and uh, ended up in an article in Vancouver Sun called The Street of Shame. So this was all part and parcel of what everybody except the police refused to call uh, a gang war. And uh, it was a gang war. And it involved a number of different groups that were uh, warring with each other, including the UN, Independent Soldiers, the Bacon Brothers, uh, and a whole pile of other South Slope gangsters, which were predominantly Indo-Canadian. And it was a very much a war zone. Uh, lots of weapons on the street, etc. So that's when we decided in Vancouver from the police department perspective, that we had to do something about the city of Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And is that how Bar Watch found its way and, and became became a fact of life? It is, and it was uh, started after two very high-profile incidents in Vancouver in the summer of 2005. <clears throat> there were two incidents that happened in and outside of licensed premises that involved uh, a gang shootout where a number of gangsters were killed inside a, a crowded bar. And one where a, a woman named Rachel Davis was killed when she tried to intervene between two warring gangs outside another place in Gastown. And that coupled with the fact that we were running into regular incidents on Granville Street and other places in Vancouver with these people, with handguns and a number of incidents that went on and on, that we decided that we needed to do something different in Vancouver. And until that time, we'd been holding the bars and clubs responsible for keeping these people out, and we were enforcing them uh, heavily. Uh, And this didn't work for them because when we found out later in our discussions with the leaders in that uh, industry that their staff were afraid of these people and that they felt we weren't doing enough to protect them. So we needed to do something different. And in 2006, late 2006, early 2007, I was given the job of trying to find a new, innovative way of attacking this problem, and uh, did that. And uh, tell us, please, how how is it that uh, that Bar Watch operates? What what do you do? How how do you how do you tamp down on the violence, and then also turn it into a situation where the message is very clearly sent and received 
that it won't be tolerated? Excellent question. This took a long time. Um, I was originally told to take a couple of weeks and look at this, which was humorous after that, but not at the time. So I did a bunch of research, and again, at that time, I didn't know uh, anything close to what would be considered an expert. And I talked to a lot of gang enforcement police officers in Vancouver, and there were a number of them that were just top-notch and still are. So I did a lot of research, asked a lot of questions, and found out a lot of things about the personalities of what we call today's millennium gangster. Really what they are more so than anything are thugs and drug dealers. And one of the things that they absolutely lived on was a rock star status. A leased vehicle, lots of bling, fancy tattoos, and they were used to being treated just like a rock star when you showed up to these places in their car. They didn't have to pay, they got free drinks, everybody watched them and made everybody uncomfortable. And I took a look at that and a hard look at it and asked the question, I wonder what would happen if you took that away? And um, that's how that started. And I asked a couple of different lawyers, including the one we had in the city of Vancouver, and they said, well, there's no way you can do this. So I did a lot of work and trying to hammer this through. I think they probably got sick of me. And in the end, got the green light to prepare a mandate that said, the duty of kicking these people out of bars and clubs that were bar watch members and um, forbidding them to come in plus coupled with over the top street level appropriate enforcement of these people in a, in a program or a project. And we see how this works. So after a period of adjustment and training of police officers, uh, it became very, very clear that we were onto something. So if you were a gangster and you were used to being treated like a rock star, you were greeted with armed police officers in groups that would come in and basically throw you out. And it was a very aggressive program that sent a message that they would understand that this is simply a black and white program. You're not allowed. You made the choice to be a gangster and a thug. Therefore, you have absolutely... Uh, blown your chance to ever come into one of these places ever again. Mm -hmm. And when they went outside and climbed into their vehicles, it was a relentless month after month after month uh, hammering of these people and a message delivered uh, that this was not going to be uh, tolerated in the city of Vancouver. So it wasn't just Bar Watch and the membership. It was also an extraordinary amount of work done by the Vancouver Police Department. Okay. So, So you have it in place. It's working. Uh, these individuals know that if they get into a fight or they cause problems in a bar, out they go. And if they continue fighting outside, they can be banned from that particular establishment for life. There, there are consequences to their actions, uh, clearly successful. And then you, you still look at the numbers in, in B.C. where the, the homicide rate is, is climbing. This, this is a societal thing, isn't it? Uh, this is really something that we have to get on top of as a society. You've done a great job with Bar Watch, but as a society, we need to look at the numbers. You look at what's happening in Toronto. You look at what's happening in, 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 in Quebec. Then you've got British Columbia. You have to, we have to get on top of this in a national way. Yes, you do. And I think there's a very clear solution to this that a lot of people in law enforcement agree with. And it comes down to a sad, sad reality. If you haven't reached a kid by the time they're about 12 or 13 years old, from a family perspective, from a community support perspective, from a school perspective, then by the time they're 15 or 16, you're going to full-blown enforcement because there is no chance you're going to reach this kid. So all the activities in the world to try to save a 17-year-old or 18-year-old is the type of kid driving around Surrey, shooting at each other in public, forget it. That's when true enforcement and consequences come into into play. Mm -hmm. And in Bar Watch, for example, it isn't that a person's going to fight in a club who's a gangster, they're not allowed in. You're never allowed in. So that consequence of a decision you made at 19 means for the rest of your life, you're not allowed in a popular nightclub in Vancouver or a restaurant in Vancouver or a lounge or a pub. So, so this is when we saw the, saw the displacement to other places in the lower mainland. Yeah. So Curtis, consequences have to mean consequences. It can't be consequences just for today and then tomorrow we'll start over again, and there'll be consequences for tomorrow, and then we'll start over again the day after tomorrow. You can't do that because it doesn't work. You're right. 
And this is the problem we have, I think, in Surrey and places. That uh, 52 murders, I think, essentially, although there was a blip in Vancouver, I think you'll find that most of those problems are the result of displacement to other locations. Mm -hmm. And, for example, I don't want to beat up on Surrey, but right now there aren't a lot of consequences in Surrey. And we've seen this for a decade. I mean, in, in Vancouver, it's rare that you'll see any type of activity like you see in Surrey or in other places, for example. I, 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 have, a, I have about a minute, Curtis. Do you see, are, are, are you hopeful, based on the, on the Bar Watch program, which you chair, and you see what's, what's happened and what's been successful as far as that's concerned, and then you look at the numbers uh, in, in BC, the, the overall numbers, as far as homicides are concerned, and then you look at Quebec and you look at Ontario and different parts of the country. Are you hopeful that we're getting a, a, a handle on it, that, that the situation is gradually and consistently improving? Well, I think that's a two-part question, Roy. Am I hopeful? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I live in Surrey. It's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. I think that probably this is the number one problem from a safety perspective of the public. Okay. And I think that what police departments have to do is change the way they approach these problems. And that is getting on them from a very early level. And that isn't just the police. That's the community. That's Mm -hmm. the families. That's the parents of these people who need to get involved and understand reality. Your 15-year-old has an an unrealistic amount of money, a nice car, and lots of status. You have to get involved early to make sure that you get this kid on the track. So it's a long-term solution. You and I will have to talk again. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Pleasure to be there. Thank All the you best. Much right. Thank you, Curtis Robinson, former Vancouver Police Department Sergeant, now chair of Bar Watch in Vancouver. Scott Newark was an Alberta prosecutor for a number of years, many years. Senior policy analyst for a federal minister of public safety, executive director for the Canadian Police Association, vice chair for the Ontario Office for Victims of Crime. Scott was also a security analyst and. Uh, uh, advisor to both the federal and Ontario governments following 9-11. But I've been speaking with Scott now, and this goes back to about 1990. And you have been the person who's taught me everything that I've learned over the last 30-plus years about the justice system in Canada. There was a time when I actually thought it worked. It's because I didn't know any better. There was a time I really thought that, you know, you could believe what people told you, that if a crime committed, then the person who was the victim was going to be taken care of, and the criminal was going to do his or her time, and there would be, there would be consequences. And uh, now, after hearing what we've heard in so many years of speaking with you and speaking with victims of crime, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. How, I don't think, I really don't believe very much of what I believe was the cornerstone of justice ever really was, or certainly isn't now. Now, Sherry Arsenault, in 2011, lost her son, Bradley, to Jonathan Pratt, and two of uh, Bradley's friends were also killed when Pratt hit their vehicle, driving his vehicle at over 200 kilometers an hour, and he was drunk. And Sherry has been fighting for, for justice for her son and her son's two friends. The most recent... Uh, experience was about two weeks ago when Sherry attended a parole hearing for Jonathan Pratt, who Sherry tells us still hasn't expressed remorse eight years later, almost eight years later, for what he did. And uh, if you weren't with us uh, about a week plus ago, then you didn't hear what Sherry said about that experience at the parole board. But I, uh, I'm, I'm glad to be able to have you speak with, uh, with, with Scott Newark, Sherry, Thank you for coming back on the program. What is it you most want to talk to Scott about, about your experience well, with the parole board? Well, well, thanks, Roy, and thank you, thank you, Scott. I, sure. I, I need to mention that I, I respect all the positions that you, you hold or held and, and your willingness to help victims through this, navigate through this justice system of ours. Yeah. Uh, I guess, you know, this is... For me, I, I analyze and I try to figure it all out. And there's many things that Corrections Canada and the parole board could do to help victims and, and even help us not feel so re-victimized all the time. But, the, you know, there's not enough time in the day to talk about everything. But what I think most bothers me and, and many, many other people is 
we only have one right, and that is to prepare and submit a victim impact statement. But the problem is we are, we are told we are writing to the pool board members, but the offender has the right to read and analyze our statements you know, even up to months before the actual yeah. date of the hearing. And to me, they're already convicted. They're already, they, it should not be disclosure to them because I find that they can read and analyze and it can actually help them, help them aid them at the poll hearing on of course. what to say. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're right about that. Uh, I, I got to tell you that... Uh, I go back to the days when uh, victims were not allowed to even attend parole hearings. Years mm-hmm. ago, I mean, that was the situation. Nobody was allowed to attend. And then it was that they, they put on uh, a provision that you were allowed to attend, but you couldn't speak. Uh, I mean, it was ridiculous. And we have actually made progress over the years in doing this. And um, the... Uh, the importance about this as well, too, is, and, and I, you absolutely, in my opinion, have it correct, too, is we want to make sure that the justice system as it operates is not re-victimizing people who are victims of crime. I saw that uh, frequently in cases uh, with uh, some of the highest-risk offenders. I helped the victims' families, for example, on the Clifford Olson case, where, mm-hmm. you know, this guy knew he wasn't getting out, but he didn't care because he knew he was causing torment to the victims' families, and so he demanded to have his parole hearing every two years, okay, and put the victims through all of this. We've actually changed laws in a number of ways uh, to try to minimize that, and I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with them, and, uh, you know, getting rid of the, uh, the faint hope clause and allowing for consecutive parole and eligibility periods. But the insights that we gain systemically from cases like yours or the ones we were, ta- the one we were just talking about, in my opinion, that's the best kind of information that we can get so as to make informed uh, judgments and policy changes to achieve the results of our justice system. And we do not want to have the corrections component of it compromise the principles that are inherent and at the core of our justice system. I read your submission to the the Senate committee uh, recently with respect to your suggestion about the a suggestion of creating a mandatory minimum sentence on impaired causing uh, death, and you, di- you, in my opinion, you absolutely correctly laid out the different principles of sentencing and how it could be done so as to achieve better results. That's the kind of insights we need to make our system work better and not re-victimize people. Well, and and I mean, I think what's very hard on victims, and and I, I don't think you'll find one that will ever disagree with me is, you know, in cases like mine, you know, and manslaughter times three, but in cases like mine, I mean, the moment he finally is, you know, found guilty, put in prison, we register and we get a letter. He, yep. he is eligible for the escorted temporary uh Absence. Passes, yeah. absences immediately. Yes. Immediately. He's in minimum security, which is just, you know, a, a nice little bungalow, within two, three months of an eight year sentence, and he's eligible for day parole at one sixth of a sentence. Yeah, that actually, um, that actually has been uh, repealed, but it is still, he's eligible for full parole at one third and day parole six months in advance of that. So on the sentence yes. he received, I did some of the, the calculations. Essentially, he would have been eligible for uh, day parole after 26 months on a supposed eight-year yes. sentence. And yes, that's one exactly. of the things that I found over the years as well, too, is that it's it, – and it causes immense um, stress for uh, uh, victims – is that, you know, uh, people don't, well, you know, when the judge says, okay, you get eight years, lots of people think that's what it actually means. And it's that's instead, what the public believes. Yeah, instead, as you go into it, it's a say one thing, do another justice system, right? Yeah, it's, it seems like there's two justice systems. Already, the lenient sentences that, in my view, the judges hand out, and then a whole new ball game when it gets to the parole board and Corrections Canada. And, Sherry, at the at the end of all of this, hard on victims yeah. uh, today. Is it the imp- victims' impact statement issue that has stayed most with you? I mean, in the last hearing, in the last hearing. 
could you say that again? Is it, is it the victim's impact statement that has stayed with you most? The fact that, you know, we have, I, I'm, I'm just finding myself up against the clock all day today. Um, so well, go ahead. Oh, well, I mean, there's only so much impact and ways you can describe heartache. Right. Yes. This victim impact statement that I gave, I didn't even get into the emotional or the physical pain because I, I just hoped he read the previous ones. Yeah. You know what, what is so disturbing about all of this is that this guy, the killer, gets to read it before the par- parole board hearing, and it's almost, it's almost like he gets to approve it. He does. And, and that's fact, that's so disturbing. The whole board could edit it if they wanted. Yeah. If Scott, like what I said, they could edit. Scott, give me twenty seconds, please, to wrap this up. Well, that's the uh, the basis is that it's information that's potentially going to be used against him, so he has a right of disclosure uh, under our uh, uh, Charter of Rights. Uh, but you're, Sherry's absolutely correct that these guys, uh, you know, will use this information to try to shape their message. Uh, although good parole board members recognize that when they see it. When they see it. Sherry, I'm going to, uh, I'm sure that you and Scott will be speaking again. And, yes, I And, and you and I will be, be speaking again. With any ideas okay. on, on victim health. And we will stay in touch. Okay. And, and you're always making a difference, Sherry. You make yeah. a huge difference. Well, thank, you. thank you, Sherry. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 